Welcome to Deep Dive Coaching for Creatives with me, Coach Cammie. In each episode, I'll be covering the basics of deep inner work, the hardest and most important work you can possibly do for yourself. I have been where you are, stuck with self-limiting beliefs and an inner critic on overdrive and no idea how to get past them. I've done this work on myself, for myself. I know how hard it is, but I want to make it easier for you and help you become your best self. You deserve it. I'm excited for you to meet my guest for this episode, my pal, Greg Larkin. Greg is the founder of Punks and Pinstripes and the author of the book, This Might Get Me Fired, which is a great roadmap for those trying to innovate their organizations from the inside. And I think most importantly, Greg is a punk. You'll see what I mean in just a bit. As you listen to our conversation, I would love for you to ask yourself how you can apply Greg's experiences to your own life to your version of Wall Street. Ask yourself, what Kool-Aid did I drink? Ready to dive deep? Now, Greg, for listeners, I want to read part of your LinkedIn post that just tickled me. Okay. It says, for the past two weeks, I've suffered through the most excruciating, paralyzing writer's block of my life. Each day, my evil twin climbs onto my shoulder and whispers into my ear, you suck at this. Delete that. Don't bother. My evil twin is a piece of shit. Now, the reason your LinkedIn post was so serendipitous was because of a post I saw on Instagram from Shonda Rhimes. Now, Shonda's work and her posts are normally very, very uplifting and very positive. However, this one was different. And the quote was, the idea that you're not qualified... Only women think that. Men never think that I'm not qualified enough. They just do the job. Fuck that. That's what I thought. The, seeing that just instantly pissed me off. I thought, okay, that's bullshit. Yeah. And I just sent out an email recently saying every man I have ever coached has experienced some form of imposter syndrome. Some form mm -hmm. of inner critic attack that says you're not good enough. And then your post this morning about your evil twin with the picture. <laughs> was just perfect. And that's kind of what I want to talk about is from the outside, you appear exceedingly successful. You know your shit, you know what's going on. And yet I, I know you also have experienced imposter syndrome. Mm -hmm. how, how do you define imposter syndrome exactly? Feeling like you're in a room you don't belong. Feeling like you're just winging it and somebody's going to find out. Okay. I have a variation of it, but it's not exactly what you describe. So I do think that I am actually someone who's quite confident. I like being me. I like going through the world as me. I see huge value in um, all the shit I've had to deal with. I I see I see value in my own character defects. Even even though they drive me fucking crazy, I'm like I I still have found a way to um, coexist peacefully with them, and at other times I'm grateful for the things I've had to build in order to like overcome them. It's like a weird thing every year, even though I'm not religious at all, and if I was, I'm half Jewish. But every year I always observe Lent, and then what I do for Lent is I try to give up one of my character defects. Um, yeah. So like I try to give last year, I gave up envy for, for Lent 
Like anytime I experience the emotion of envy, I'm like, wait, but you see, you're doing it, Greg. Like, why? And I was maybe successful 50% of the time. But like, <laughs> it's an it ongoing was, practice. It's an ongoing practice. You never get it right all the time. No, but it was like interesting to do that. But I don't, honestly, I don't ever. This is a weird thing to say. It's weird hearing myself say it. I don't ever walk into a room and feel like I don't belong. Mm -hmm. I honestly don't. I don't feel that way. I might want to leave. <laughs> but I never walk into a room and I'm like, I, I don't fucking belong here. Okay. Are there um, times that you felt unqualified? Even though there were there was evidence to the contrary? There have been times, sure. Why don't you, why don't you tell um, me about one of those times? I'm going to tell you a, a time I felt unqualified, and then I'm going to tell you about a very recent thing that happened where I sort of revisited the same room in a way. So I worked on Wall Street for a while, and one of the things that happened when I started to do well on Wall Street was that I would get invited to these total douchey like retreats where you're like going up to fucking Hyannis and hanging out with the Kennedys along with a bunch of aristocrats and financiers and hedge fund magnates and politicians and congressmen and all these dickheads. Um, <laughs> and it was never my, I never, and the first time I went and I'm like hanging out literally at like JFK's house the the what was it called camelot it was like the summer white house i forget but anyway i'm i'm at his house like all these people are there you know at that later that evening we're hanging out at the hotel and i'm like jesus i'm in like some rarefied air fuck me this is crazy i can't believe i'm here and later that i'm not gonna say who but there were three two people running for congress two people who were congressmen and like some of the wealthiest hedge fund managers in the whole world, people who are like a feature in every day, like there's probably something. And I'm like, and me. And we're at the bar of some hotel in Hyannis. And I'm just like, wow, I don't, I'm not, I can't believe I'm like sitting here drinking scotch with these guys. And so one of them asked me, so like, tell me again what you do. I don't, I don't know who you are. <laughs> and I'm like, uh, yeah, I just, I just started my job at the, uh, as the global head of innovation at Bloomberg. And I honestly, like, it's kicking my ass. I don't really know if I'm supposed to be here. <laughs> like, I kind of just admitted like my own sense of inadequacy. And like they and like he kind of deviated from the the scrum of the conversation and then they all turned at me and they're like, Whoa, hey, 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 hey. I'm like, what what did I say? They're like, rewind. The way you say this is I'm the global head of innovation at Bloomberg and I am reinventing finance for hedge funds and capital managers. And I'm like, that is such fucking horseshit. <laughs> And I, I, I'm like, okay, sorry, I'll work on my pitch, you know, kind of thing. But they were like, you have to go in with like bulletproof bravado. You have to be the spring that's like ready to pop. And I'm like, oh, Christ, you know. And and then I, I'm like, okay, yeah, I'll work on it, you know, sorry. 
that at the, in the moment where you, did you, did you take it personally? How did you feel in the moment? Oh, in the moment, I'm just like, wow, I hung out at the Kennedy. I, I didn't care. I was just like, okay. so I guess that's how like powerful people, you know, this is like 12, 15 years ago. Okay. Yeah. So at the time it was just like, oh, I guess this is how you're supposed to behave when you hang out with the masters of the universe kind of thing. <laughs> masters of the universe. <laughs> I left Wall Street in 2015. I left that job at Bloomberg. I kind of reclaimed my um, punk rock entrepreneur roots. Thank God. Yeah. Um, but I think maybe without knowing it at the time, I, I no, I, I did know it at the time when I left. I made a very conscious decision that I am never going to apologize for being who I am ever again, mm. ever. I'm going to lead with it. All the fucking warts, all the things that I don't necessarily like about myself. I'm still not going to fucking apologize for them. I might say that I don't like them, but I'm not going to be in a situation where I have to diminish my true self or my, 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 the, the punk attributes that make me who I am. And, and, you read my stuff on LinkedIn. It's pretty unapologetic. Mm -hmm. So you said that came up recently. Yeah. So a friend of mine who I, I actually missed a lot, like I, he was a very good buddy of mine when I did work on Wall Street. And we have kind of lost touch ever since I left that life. I got a text message from him saying, hey, I'm having like a kind of drinks thing at this fancy bar i'm hosting come by it'd be great to see you and i'm like sure man i'd love to see you too and i'm like all right my old suits still fit me you know and i like wear a suit jacket and a shirt no tie and some jeans and and i show up and it's like one of those things in um like 58th floor of some fancy building and it's a private room and there's and it's all these masters of the universe, these like huge billionaires. Everyone is walking up to you and they've mastered exactly that conversation. And they're just mm. like, how are you doing? Let me pepper you with my credentials. Yeah, I run a $78 billion fund. We're, we're currently in the middle of a raise. We're having a great year. The volatility in the capital markets is kind of interesting. But tell me about yourself. What are you here for? You know, Ugh. and I'm just like, yuck. And I was really honest. I'm like, look, I, I left Wall Street 10 years ago. I'm here because a friend invited me like, you're not going to make any money from me. <laughs> <laughs> like I, I you're not going to make money from me. I'm not raising funds for punks and pinstripes, my startup, and you're not qualified to be a member of punks and pinstripes. <laughs> so like, I'm not useful to you. That doesn't mean we can't hang out, but like, I'm not useful to you. And there's pro there's a lot of people who are useful to you. So like run along. You know? Oh, that's <laughs> like, funny. And I just owned it. I'm like, I don't fucking care. Like, and at your core, were were there any any hints from that old voice that said you you needed to work on this? You needed. Is this really who you are, or were you completely a hundred percent vested in? Fuck y'all. This is who I am. It wasn't fuck y'all. So don't get me wrong. I wasn't. Right. I, I but I, mean, I wasn't like not in the expectation category. So it wasn't, I didn't enjoy the company. I, I, I want to tell you a funny story that happened that evening. Okay. So this dude, he, he's, um, he's a, a big time investment banker. Again, I, I recognized him from like the fact that I 
have never gotten over the habit of reading the Financial Times every day. Um, <laughs> yeah, some some Wall Street habits die hard. And he's like peppering me, you know, like grilling, 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 grilling. And so, tell me again what you said. I'm like, yeah, I left the life, you know, in 2015. I've never come back. I never will go back. Like I'm I'm, I'm done with Wall Street, you know. And and he's like, oh yeah. So basically, we like we just did a $12.5 billion acquisition of some company. We're working on this other $38 billion acquisition. The deal pipeline is still going strong, despite the fact that interest rates are at blah, 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 blah. And he's talking at me. And I'm like, so you got any plans for the holidays? I'm like, yeah, like my wife is from Scotland. I'm going to go to Scotland, hang out with her family. He's like, yeah, I haven't figured out like what I'm doing. Um, I have like four houses. I haven't been to three of them in three years blah, 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 all these things. And um, sounds like a hollow life to me. And then pause. And he's he's also had a few drinks like he's a little slurry. You know, I could smell it on him. And he's like, wait, give me hold on. Can you rewind a second? I'm like, yeah, sure. What, what's up? He says to me, um, did you say you left Wall Street? Like you left? Like you just walked out? I said, yeah. He's like, how did you do that? <laughs> I said, I just quit my job. He's like, did you have like a fund you were going to? Is there like a plan B? I said, no, I just knew that plan A was not working for me anymore. Like I couldn't take it anymore. He's like, holy shit. And you're okay now? And I'm like, I'm great. It's the toughest hardest best decision i've ever made in my adult life it was fucking awesome he's like that's unbelievable and like weren't you like like did you have multiple homes like any divorces alimony anything (laughs) i'm like no like i'm still very happily married to my wife i've always even when i was making wall street money i've lived within my means i didn't really you know, you I didn't drink the Kool-Aid. Yeah. You know, I lived a reasonable middle class life, even when I could afford something more. He's like, man, that's amazing. And I'm like, well, I feel hey, so bad for that guy that that was so hard to imagine. Not only was it hard to imagine, he's like, I am on my third marriage I have four fucking houses. My kids like go in and out of insane trouble. Like, gee, I wonder why (laughs) he's like, I don't like this, but I don't have another. I'm trapped. No, he's not. He's not as trapped. Is he he not? No, he's not as trapped as he thinks he is. What do you do with that? You think those houses, you know, you find out what it is he actually wants. He is. He has been drinking the Kool-Aid. He's he's he, bought he, it. The Kool Aid, the Kool Aid has started to wear off. Yeah, and and disentangling yourself. Like, have you ever tried to get a new bank account? Yeah. Have you ever tried to move your bank account? Yeah, that's insane. And you, like, I've been trying to leave Chase for five years. I have been trying to get rid of my J.P. Morgan Chase. I'm still there. I have other bank accounts, but all my shit is still tied up in Chase, which is a bad retail bank. I don't like them. Wow. The idea that you're stuck. I love that we're talking about this because so many people do believe they're stuck. They're stuck in either trying to find a job or they're stuck in their marriage or they're stuck in a job they that doesn't bring them joy. Mm-hmm. 
And they keep telling themselves, I have to stay. I have to do this. I have to not do that. Part of that process is denying what it is they actually want, denying their true desires. You happen to wake up and listen when your entire being said, oh, hell no. I think your sense of duty and obligation is very, well, yeah, that's never, it's often really misaligned with what your soul needs. Yeah. But there's always a way, there's always a way to, to find peace in what it is that you're doing. It's not like, well, you know, I have to sell all my things and I have to move out into the mountains and live alone to, to move away from Wall Street or move away from this job or whatever. I don't, I don't it's not think so it's that simple. No, that's what I'm saying. It's not it's not black and white. It's not, you know, I have to no, sever all like, ties and move on, but there is a way to find peace with what it is you're doing. I, I think it's easier the older I get, it's easier to find peace. The more I have learned to defer to my gut feelings and mm-hmm. spend time with them and make sure I'm listening to them and Don't overcommit to something. You know, I I trust myself a bit more over time. But like, I don't know, like when my startup crashed three years ago, all I wanted was a boss. (laughs) You know, (laughs) all I wanted was to go back to a place like Bloomberg and like rebuild my savings. And I would um, argue that that would be fear talking. That would be. Of course, it was fear. It was also deep, deep bruising, and yeah, and and fear is always a lousy advisor. No doubt, it's still real. It's still real. I'm not. I'm not saying it doesn't exist. I'm saying it's a lousy advisor. No, fear is also your former self telling your current self that it loves you. It's not a lousy advisor. Fear. Listen to fear. Well, acknowledge, acknowledge fear. And there are you, there are absolutely things where your gut is like you should be very afraid and like all the rational information surrounding mm-hmm. you is saying this is safe and you should move forward. But all your gut is just like something's not right yeah. here. Yeah, you that's have- your that's your past, like giving your present a fucking hug and yes. you better honor that shit that's yes. healthy fear fear is necessary oh i i agree fear is definitely necessary as is listening to your gut you have a hundred million neural cells in your gut and you have forty thousand neural cells in your heart and the the information that is traveling between those organs in your brain 80 percent are coming from the organs and going to the brain so yeah. it's not your brain telling them what to do it's them telling your brain information intuition right. it's gut knowing not just yeah. gut feeling, it's gut knowing and and acknowledging those things, not being on autopilot, not letting fear have the steering wheel without conceding, this is a wise choice for me. This is the best choice for me. Instead of saying, well, I'm afraid I'm going to do what I've always done or I'm going to default to something that's familiar because I'm afraid. Letting mm-hmm. that run on autopilot is where we get into trouble. Yeah, I think that's right. Yeah. So becoming becoming aware of those thoughts, aware of the fear. Aware of, I, I just want a boss because it's familiar. I want a boss because there's there's safety, air quote, safety in doing what is familiar. No, it's not just that. Okay. It's also, for me, it's also because the culture I let. So there's a thing as a, as a business owner, as an entrepreneur, as a business leader that I just don't have anymore. And I, I've that. built it in to the extent that I can. But like, 
when I've had great bosses and great leaders and great mentors, mm -hmm. I get to borrow from their mistakes. Oh, yeah. You know, and I get to have them, they, they teach me stuff, you know, and that I don't have that anymore. I can't access that anymore. Not, mm -hmm. not as much as I used to. Equally, I got a lot of joy when my bosses were stuck and they were like, the pressure is very real right now and I am out of ideas. You know, that was a learning experience for both of us. And I think as an entrepreneur, I miss that. I do miss that. Like I miss having, mm -hmm. I just, I don't have that anymore. Mm -hmm. You know, I don't have someone who's a full-time leader mm -hmm. of me. I have to do that for myself and I, or I have to like ask people to do me a favor and be that for me. Mm -hmm. um, but it's no one's explicit job. Mm -hmm. And so I think what you were hearing was the exhaustion of just having to figure like when you run a company, you're your own chief sales officer, your own CFO, you're your own chief technology, you're everything. And you're kind of only good at one thing. You know? <laughs> yeah. That's the one thing entrepreneurs yeah. need to recognize before they even start up is how, how comfortable are you wearing multiple hats? If you only like to do your craft, don't become an entrepreneur. You'll be miserable. Or find the model for doing the shit you don't like that. Yeah. Delegate. Or just be like, yeah, like there's a dude who wrote a book called Profit First. I think his name is Mike Michalowicz. I could be wrong. It's a little self-helpy. Like, I can't mm -hmm. say it's like my, he's like not exactly my favorite author, but like. What do you have against self-help authors? Hang on. <laughs> oh, don't get me fucking started, Cammy. Seriously, you want me to go there? And what about this might get me fired? Is that not a self-help book of sorts? It is to a point. I'll tell you my thing. Okay. What's your thing, Craig? There's a gigantic difference between the advice of a pundit and the advice of a practitioner. There's a gigantic difference between the advice of a survivor versus that of a superhero. And advice without accountability tends to be shitty from people who have never had to live with the consequences of getting it wrong. Mm, nicely put. They give shitty advice that sounds awesome when they're on stage. Like, this is what I fucking detest about Simon Sinek. I think he's a fraud. I think he's a piece of shit. I think he does a disservice. I think he's only in the business of Simon Sinek. I don't think he offers advice that's helpful to anyone but himself. You know, I do. I think it's a gimmick because he's saying things about something he's never lived through. He's never had to run a company. He's offering suggestions about how to build institutions where he's never been a fucking employee. Never? Never. He's a fucking ad executive from Ogilvy. He's not like the one thing I talk about when I'm meeting with CFOs. I'm like, no CFO has ever met with you and asked for your <laughs> advice. <laughs> Companies need fewer CFOs and more chief vision officers. I'm like, give me a fucking break, dude. You have no, you, you, you make these trite fucking platitudes and, <laughs> and they sound good, but it's like, it's entirely like mind fuckery. 
And tell me how you really feel, Craig. <laughs> Sorry. I, I, Don't I, apologize. I love it. I, I, I grew up in Queens and we tend to spot bullshit and call it like we see it. But that's my beef. What I really do value, Hubert Jolie, he wrote a book called The Heart of Business. He's the guy who was responsible for rescuing Best Buy when it went into bankruptcy. That's an amazing book. That is a dude going into the heart of his darkness, going into the scariest. Someone passed him the baton at a moment of extreme risk, extreme failure, where the probability of success was very low. He had to wrestle with his own bullshit. Mm -hmm. I'll make a lot of time for someone like that because that is pressure tested yeah. advice. A lot of it runs completely counter to conventional wisdom. A lot of it violates what the playbook says you're supposed to do. Mm -hmm. The playbook. <laughs> the playbook. Yeah. Do you think his success was because he wrestled his inner demons? I don't know if he talks about that exactly. I think he had a very strong sense of what was right. Mm. And I think he honored some emotional instincts that were financially objectively bad decisions. Like, do not make layoffs in your stores, even though your stores are having to shutter. It's a bad decision. But he correctly understood that brick and mortar stores have a competitive advantage to e-commerce because you have humans who you can talk to, who can relate to you, who can ask you questions about what you're looking for, what you'd want to achieve with the thing. What's the bet? You know, you have enthusiasts who are like literally just love stereo systems and televisions, mm -hmm. you know, and he kind of understood that if you were able to put that, that that was the only hope for survival rather than turning the physical store with like the, the financially, Mm -hmm. you know, sensible plan would be make the e-commerce experience come to life inside of the store. And he was like, that's not to say we can't make things better and more efficient. We, there's some techniques we can borrow from e-commerce, but there's something that we have that e-commerce does not have. Mm -hmm. You think he listened to those gut feelings and thinks that's, that's what yeah, he did. made the he difference? Yeah, he did. Yeah, he did. He did. And that takes courage. And I, I, I admired his, you might call it stubbornness, but it wasn't arrogance. You know, I think his he insistence a, on listening to his own inner compass. Yeah, it was also like, hey, if we go out that then we're going to fail doing it. Like there's a very real possibility of failure. What I'm not going to do is like we have to get out of the out of the bell curve a little bit. You know, we have to go, we have to get outside of anyone's comfort zone um, because this is a desperate time where we've kind of tried everything mm -hmm. <laughs> and there's no evidence that it's been helping. So we have to do things that are not rational. You know, we have to try some experiments. We have to lean into assets that people have told us are deficits. Mm -hmm. And I, I just admired that um, realization and I admired his willingness to say like if we're gonna fail we're gonna fail on our own terms mm -hmm. has there been an instance in your life where a situation like that has come up oh yeah all the time tell me about that 
Where, where, t- what do you mean? Like, tell me what, what hasn't been that. When, I mean, when have you, <laughs> for people who are listening, who, who are not familiar with what you have accomplished so far in your life. Yeah. When have you just leaned in and said, no, I'm going to, I'm going to listen to my gut feelings and I'm going to do this my way. Um, Besides leaving Wall Street, I'm sure you had a slew of people saying you're going to do what? Oh, yeah. Tons. I also had a slew of people where the minute I was out the door, people who were sort of cordial and aloof when I worked with them, who were like, can we hang out like now? Like, what are you doing today? Who were like, <laughs> where, what are you doing? How can I how can you t- coach me? Show me <laughs> you know? um, wow. people who just looked like they were stuffy, mm. risk averse you know, fit blended right in Wall Street folks. And, you know, you meet them out of work and suddenly they're wearing a T-shirt and their arm is a sleeve of tattoos and shit like that. So there there are more punks hidden in that environment than you might assume. Honestly, Cammy, my life is all, everything has been that. Every big breakthrough has been that. I was the first person to publicly predict the subprime financial crisis when I was 28. And I did that not only did I do that by completely, I was just too stupid. Like I hadn't, I didn't have an MBA. Like I didn't know how you're supposed to analyze banks. <laughs> but I took the job to be a, a a bank analyst for this investment research startup, and I made up my own model. And that model told me that the financial, like the booming mortgage market, was going to collapse. And not only did it say it was going to collapse, but it was like, it's going to be what we all know now as the 2008 financial crisis. Like I, I figured that out, but the minute I figured it out and the minute we pushed the product saying Lehman Brothers is going to collapse, Bear Stearns is going to collapse, Countrywide Financial is going to collapse, all of which turned out to be true. All of their head lawyers were on the phone saying, we're going to sue you. And for about half a minute, I thought my life was over. And then my CEO, Matt Kiernan, God bless that man, was like, hey, did any of them say that your numbers were wrong? No. He's like, well, then fuck them. Good for you for having the balls to like reinvent the wheel. And and this is what happens when you're right. Mm -hmm. You know, this is when it happens when you had the fortitude to say the thing that no one else had the balls to say like fucking lean into it dude so in Um, the moment did you you said you were too too stupid to recognize that in the moment did you think maybe i shouldn't do this no in the moment when it initially happened i was terrified and i i like offered my resignation and you know the top lawyer for the fourth largest investment bank in the world called me personally and said like you're going to be named in a lawsuit and we just canceled our contract with your startup. I mean, mm. the right thing the right thing to do when you're 28 years old and they made a stupid mistake by hiring you is to offer your resignation, <laughs> which is what I did. When you found out the information, when you discovered this information and when you were you wrote an article about it? Basically, we had a research product. I published the research saying this is our thoughts. So, right before you published that research, did you think maybe I shouldn't do this? Did you have second thoughts or did you think I need to do this? I, I need to let people know. Or you were um, thinking, oh, I, I'm just doing my job. 
that's a great question. If I, I assume no one would read it. <laughs> I didn't think it was a big deal. Honestly, I'm like, why? Who am I? I'm I'm not known. You know, I'm 28. I'm just coming into this business and have a brand or a reputation at that point. I just assumed like, who reads Innovest shit anyway? Innovest was the startup. So would you think that is that imposter syndrome in that moment? At the moment, maybe, but it was also really freeing because I'm like, I can say whatever the fuck. (laughs) (laughs) So it felt really good. I mean, when I wrote it and I'm like, yeah, no, I like the numbers. I think we've uncovered data that's meaningful. I think it's data that other people should have access to and aren't really using. You know, I, I think we have this counter intuitive point of view that more people should be hip to. And by the way, no one's going to read it anyway. So (laughs) like, I'll I'll say it as assertively as I'd like. I bet you were a little surprised that so many people read it. Well, you know, it's interesting. That was, uh, let's see, that was May of 2006. So it's two years before any of it actually came true. And it got very little traction. Meaning the people who read it were only the people from the companies I mentioned. Our clients at the time were like, "Eh, okay, like, what are we going to do? Pull our money out of the banking sector and have our fund underperform? Like, this is the hottest market to be in. Well, like all of our investors will flee if we don't pick up some of that action. A few, like some of the firms that were in the movie, The Big Short, read our research and started to build a short position. That movie was but shocking. It wasn't shocking to me. No, I imagine not. <laughs> and then once it actually started to come true, you know, once Bear Stearns collapsed and then Countrywide and it all started to go to, to shit, then only then were like CNBC and the Wall Street Journal. Like, who, did anyone see this coming? Who saw that? Did anyone see this coming? Then they found me and they found us. And at that point, like the few people who were listening to us were like, yeah, these guys were real early. And we got acquired because of that. That was the reason we had our exit. One of the reasons anyway. Nice. So how do you think that what you learned from that experience, how do you think that helped you when you established punks and pinstripes? Or did something translate into punks and pinstripes? I'm going to tell you something, Cammy. Okay, great. When I'm in high school, I'm in high school in New York. I had this like double life. I was both on the football team, but I also loved punk music and was kind of weird and took art classes at Parsons School of Design and shit like that. And what I loved about the punk scene in the 90s in New York City was that everything that made me totally undateable in high school was really valuable currency in the world of punk music. (laughs) Yes. I've always liked feeling like the truest version of myself, even when it's not necessarily the most likable or popular. Mm -hmm. I get no joy from trying to squeeze my personality into someone else's mold of what's palatable. Um, More people need to hear them. Yeah, I've just, I, I don't enjoy it. And I, I'm pretty good at, at just not letting it happen. Not letting it happen. I don't do it. And I, and I get myself out of situations where I feel like I have to do that. 
I don't stay very long. So many people would benefit from adopting that mindset. <laughs> yeah, I, I, I don't. I don't know how people can adopt that mindset if they don't like. I don't. I don't know if there's a way to learn that. I think. It yeah, just you have to me. like yourself first. You have to acknowledge. I think you also have to make peace with all your own bullshit. Yes, you you have to go go digging, inspect your trash pile that's inside you, and say, "Yeah, yeah. this is my trash pile." Yeah, I think that's right. You I can't you, pretend that you, trash pile doesn't exist. I think you have to fall in love with your own scars a little bit. Absolutely. It's but, all, um, for me, it's all about the love. Self-love is the, the key to all kinds of peace and acceptance and yeah. and becoming your best whatever it is that you do. So how, how, does, how does that experience feed into punks and pinstripes? I think... One of the things that I experienced when you're like the rebel in the boardroom, right? You're in a position of executive authority inside of a, of a large corporation where there's sort of a template of who belongs here. And you're kind of not on that list. I would, I would never on that list. Oh, my God. But you are also indispensable for driving progress, for creating important changes it's a really tough spot to be in mm-hmm. i've been in that spot you're only going to be viewed as a deficit until you recognize that you are an asset that all the progress that is objectively essential cannot happen if the only people who are in charge are just normal <laughs> <laughs> average yeah it's impossible yeah. It's impossible. And so I think that kind of punk mindset, and I, and I think when you are that leader, you start to make that transition when you discover all the other leaders who are as weird as you are. Mm-hmm. Like when you can build community with them, when you can call them at three in the morning when you're freaking out and feeling like shit, when you can have very tactical conversations about how do I maximize my salary given my my like, am I at the upper end of what I deserve in terms of how much money I'm making, how much authority I should have? How do I get more of both of those things? If it's time to leave, how do I move to my next role in a way that honors what I'm bringing to the party and doesn't ask me to stifle it? Mm-hmm. Punks and Pinstripes is that. It's a, a home for those people. Equally, it's very unwelcoming to everyone who's not one of them. <laughs> you well, can't get its... into punks and pinstripes if you're not one of them. Yeah, by its nature, it's it's doing it's it's beckoning forward the right people and pushing away the wrong people, which is what every. Well, not only that, anyone who applies to be so there's only a hundred members. There will never be a one hundred and first member of punks and pinstripes. Mm. It's extremely curated. Yeah, you have to be not just vetted. Like the vetting process is hard. Mm-hmm. You have to meet with three people, and my instructions to them are, can we be of service to this person? Can they be of service to us? And would you want to spend a long weekend hanging out with them at a ski resort? (laughs) That's good criteria. And if it's not a 10 out of 10 on all three of those questions, it's a zero. Yeah. My mentor says if it's it's a maybe, it's a no. If it's a yeah, it's got to be a fuck yeah. Right. I've been that outsider in the boardroom where I ask hard questions and I've 
been the instigator for change, but I've never felt like I've never understood in a in a corporate environment anyway. And and my experience there has been limited as a graphic designer, but I've never felt like I have the authority to step up and say, look, this is how design is going to change you or this or their company or this is how my contributions are going to really benefit. If you're if you're in that kind of position and you still recognize, well, yeah, but what I do bring to the table is important. How do you get past that hump? Sorry, which which hump exactly? (laughs) Of of knowing that what you bring to the table is valuable but not feeling like you have the authority or the wherewithal or the courage even to, to stand up and say, I have more to offer, or I I can, I can see how, what I bring to the table can benefit others when you're feeling like, Oh, I I have to play smaller or have to fit in the box that they have assigned me in this title. I think you can ask really good questions in those environment In that environment, the minute you say, trust me, I'm really valuable here is the minute, the more you say that, the more untrustable you are. (laughs) I agree. (laughs) There are two red flags for for me. Whenever someone says, trust me, I know I can't trust them. And whenever someone says, as a friend, everything they're saying is because they're not a friend. They just wish you thought they were. Oh, yeah. I think asking really good questions in those environments is what gets you like if you can't point out what the blind spot is that the current system and the status quo is overlooking, then you have to invite people to see it, but you can't force them to do it. Mm-hmm. I love you that. Know. Asking them to see or or even taking it on yourself. What is the blind spot? I mean, it's it's a really I'm not even going to say it. It's too crass. Yeah, fuck it. I'll say it. <laughs> You know, if if you're single and you're hoping to meet someone one night and you go around and you're like, hey, I don't know what you're doing after this, but did you want to come home with me? It's not going to work well for you. No, no. Like all those LinkedIn messages I get. Hi, it's so great to connect. Those are fucked up. And, And I my first my first reply is, what are your intentions? What's your intent right. to connect with me? What is it that you want? Well, we have this great. Nope. Bye. It's like right. saying, hi, it's so nice to meet you. Will you marry me? <laughs> right. It's creepy as hell. What? Ew. It's creepy as hell. Um, yeah. So I, I think there's, 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 like a, there's an inner game and there's an outer game. The inner game is like, if I don't see how I can add meaningful value here, then it might not be the right place for me to be. And and if they don't see how I can add meaningful value here, it might not be the right place for me to be. One of the realizations I've come to is that I value my time more than other people's money. Say that again. I value my time more than other people's money. So simple and elegant. Mm, love it. Life is short. Yeah. Life, it, the time we get is the... The great leveler, you know, and yeah. And, and so you, once you once you know that about yourself and you're like, listen, my time, you're spending money on my time and I'm not getting I don't think I'm delivering the value with my time and I'm not getting value because I'm not delivering it. You don't necessarily have to make that an outward statement, but you do have to carry that belief with you. 
Exactly. And you have to ask really good questions about how your time can be used to add value. Mm -hmm. What is the big unknown? What are the operational like knowns that just need someone to put some shovels in the dirt and do it? And you have to trust people to share that information with you. If that's missing, then you're not using your time in the right way and you're not using other people's money in the right way. Mm -hmm. Nicely put. And, you know, that might seem like it's not arrogant. It's no. not arrogance. That's no. that's it's very respectful. It's yeah. respectful. People notice when they're sitting in the presence of someone who thinks in that way. Yeah, it's confidence. It's saying, I know my value. Arrogance is my value is more than yours. Right. And I think what you're kind of describing initially is someone coming in and saying, hey, I have a lot more I can add value to here. You know, trust me, I'm someone, I'm the person you need. As opposed to saying, I think I need a better understanding of what you need. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Or I think I need a better understanding of what value looks like for this organization. Yeah. I, I see what point A is, but where is point B? Like, mm -hmm. Or help me understand, I think the value is X, Y, and Z. Is that correct? Help me understand right. if that's not. <laughs> I assume it's this. Is that assumption correct? Yeah. And I think the more you're helping people gain that clarity and clarify it for you, mm -hmm. the more they all recognize your value and, and value your time. Mm -hmm. But that's that's a process. You know, you have to get it wrong a few times before you get it right. Mm -hmm. Someone reached out to me today. I wrote this article about the fucking horrific writer's block that has crushed my soul over the past two weeks but it's really good data it <laughs> is know? data like, of the minute the minute i wrote about it the minute i'm like actually that's a pretty good article i just wrote i'm not a bad writer <laughs> <laughs> it's data and to understand to move from i can't do this to the thought of i can't do this is data the transition yeah. from from feeling it to observing it is what makes it changeable, what makes you able to get past it or beyond it or use it or step back from it and, and turn it around and see it from all sides. But to be inside of it thinking, oh, I can't, you're overwhelmed by it, you're inside of it. And it's so important to get out of it and be the observer to those things. Absolutely. There's uh, something to be said for finding value in your own scars. There's a question I ask people all the time, like, what's the hardest setback you've had to overcome? And when you think about it now, do you regret having gone through it? And the answer is never regret, ever. No. Ever. Not ever. Which is a beautiful thing, because when you get, are going through setbacks, you're like, you know what? I'm not going to regret going through this. You know, when yeah. you know that about your past, you can, like, think about future youth reminiscing about present you and all the shit you're dealing with. And it's yeah. just like, this is good data. I'm going to value <laughs> like yes. at some point, at yeah. some point I'm going to be happy that I'm going through this shit. Yeah. I had a really rough childhood and at the time I didn't, I, I certainly wasn't glad I was going through any of that shit. But now mm -hmm. as 54 year old me, I can say, I know all that shit happened for me. Because I gleaned all the pearls. I chose to glean all the pearls from those those horrible experiences. 
Yeah. And, and I can very safely and very contentedly leave them in the past and know they'll stay there. And I never have to relive them, but I have the pearls from them. I have all the pearls from all of the experiences. And I thank that past version of me for not giving up, for not cratering. And I think, okay, what, what future version of me will be really glad that, you know, today I'm struggling with whatever. It's a good viewpoint. It's a good, like, this is temporary. Our lives are fleeting in the grand yeah. scope and scale of the entire universe, or even our galaxy, or even our, our solar system, or even our planet. Our lives are just a blip of a yeah. blip of a blip of a blip. And we I are also so, don't want to, I, I want to be really careful not to minimize trauma. Oh, no, and, not at all. You know, and I don't want to minimize how it, you know, you can be thrown right back there. You know, I don't, that shit's real. Like, I don't want to, and it can be crippling and debilitating and horrific. You know, so I, I don't want to have some sort of like, trite oversimplification of that i will say though that there's like a way to absorb it and 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 make peace with it and find value in it yeah even though it's painful and 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 it can be recurring painful yeah it's the for me it's the practice of observing not absorbing yeah it's a hard thing to do uh, yeah, and it takes practice. And uh, somebody asked me this morning, I was on a group call for ADP list, and somebody asked me this morning, you know, when are you done? I said, when you're dead. <laughs> <laughs> Shit. Really? You still have a heartbeat. You're still breathing. You're, you're still working on yourself, and you'll be done when you're dead. So you mean I'm going to be dealing with my evil twin for the rest of my life, Cammie? Yes. And the this more you do it, the easier. Yes. yes. And the more you do it, the easier it's going to get. I had, I had, (laughs) maybe true. It is. It is. I had as much work, as much inner work as I've done on myself. I had my inner critic and his name is Cruella and he's male. I know it's weird. He chimed in Monday when I was looking at somebody else's website, another coach's website. And I thought, oh, her website is so good. Oh my God. I'm minus sucks. And and I thought, "Mm, Cruella, shut your face. That's not (laughs) helpful. It's not original. It's, it's not useful data. What is useful from me looking at this better website? Oh, I can glean ways to make mine better. (sighs) Much better. Much better than beating myself up with that comparison stick. Yeah. Thank you very much. I wanted to have a conversation with you and dig in and we did. There we go. I love hearing your talks. They're always awesome. I have to listen with both brain cells. (laughs) thanks cammy this has been great thank you so much if you want to learn more about greg go to punksandpinstripes.com or you can find him on linkedin for more good juju visit cammy.coach c-a-m-i dot coach 